Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. You can see from all the flags that something's going on around here. And uh, all these flags up here on the, on the stage represent all the countries where you folks at Second Presbyterian Church are at work. And there's a lot to do out there in the world. It's a very poor world and a very lost world. And uh, all of us need to be engaged in international missions. I mentioned to our congregation on Sunday morning that it's of the very nature of the gospel itself that the nations be included. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6, that this is the mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles, that is the nations, have been included. So uh, preaching the gospel is not only a matter of what you're preaching and sound doctrine, but to whom are you preaching it? And you must be preaching it to the lost of the nations, otherwise you're not preaching the gospel, because it's of the very essence of the gospel that it go around the world. So we must continually commit ourselves to that task. Uh, if you don't have a way of getting committed uh, to uh, international mission uh, in your own church or in any other way, feel free to join us this weekend, and uh, we'll take we'll send people on short-term missions trips from any church around, uh, and we'll take prayer for missionaries from anybody. So we'd love to have you if you'd like to join us. Let's turn in our Bibles to First Samuel. I'm Second Samuel chapter 11, and here we come to one of the key stories in uh, David's life. Up until now, things have been going well for David, uh, even amidst great opposition and challenges, and now things don't go so well for him. Let's take a look at it. It has amazing relevance for our own day. Chapter 11, verse 1, page 559. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him at all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. 
so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I had a woman uh, come to me some years ago dealing with a husband that she didn't understand. She said, she asked me a question. She said, Pastor, do men just think about sex all the time? I said, yeah, that about covers it. <laughs> and she said, I mean, not only at night, but, but in the morning and, and, and at noon at lunch. I said, and everything in between, my dear. It's pretty constant. You've heard the story of the, the man who went to get counseling, and uh, the counselor used the Rorschach inkblot test to kind of figure out where the man was. You know how that works. You throw up an inkblot, and then the counselee says what he sees there. And that can help the counselor understand how the man's mind is working. So they got to this Rorschach inkblot test, and the counselor said, so what do you see? And he said, sex. So he turned to another Rorschach inkblot, and he said, what do you see there? He said, sex. Went about five times. The counselor finally said to his client, I think you're obsessed with sex. And the man says, no, you're the one showing the dirty pictures. Uh, So that's kind of the way it is with guys. And I have to ask myself, why in the world are we made this way? And the answer is, I don't know. I guess somebody's got to be attracted and aroused and pursue in order to have a romantic relationship and certainly the man is attracted and aroused very quickly, and it's largely through what he sees with his eyes, and later on what he can grab with his hands. And that's what arouses him. That's not what arouses a woman, but it's what arouses a man. 
Because of the way that we're built, it's like dynamite. Dynamite can be very useful, blowing up some rocks so that we can cut a tunnel through a mountain or whatever it is. But dynamite can also kill you, and sex can kill you too. And unfortunately, it's killing a lot of people, and it, it nearly killed David. Uh, sex is a wonderful thing. God made us as sexual beings. Whether you're married or single, you're a sexual being. And you want to express your masculinity 24-7. You're, con- you're always a man, and you're always expressing yourself as a man. You're a sexual being. You come across to others as a sexual being. That's the way it should be. There are ways in which we serve the world by being men. We've talked a lot about the special role of men through the months and the years. We have a special role. Part of that is our sexuality. But it's got to be under control. And if it's not under control, then our whole life becomes dissipated. The amazing thing here is that David had a tremendous life going for him. He was a giant killer. He, was, he had two decades of sterling leadership. He had choice men in the right places. Uh, he had a military force that any foe would have respected. He had enlarged the boundaries of Israel to 60,000 square miles. There were no, he had had no defeats in the battlefield. He had exports, imports. He had a strong national defense, financial health. He had a beautiful home. He had plans for the temple of the Lord. So what if he engaged himself in a few more women? And what if he got involved sexually? Who's going to say a word? That's just the problem. These problems usually come when you think you're in the midst of your strength. When you're failing or you're struggling or you're concerned, you stay focused and you become dependent and you pray more. And that's exactly the way you ought to be. And when you become successful and everything's going right, so right that you think you can just send the troops out with the assistant coach. The head coach doesn't need to go out there. And instead of being on the battlefield, David was staying back home. That was his first problem. And so often it's the problem with us. Things are going well. You get relaxed. Just flick on the TV. That leads to one thing to another. And here we go. This sexuality that we have is easily detonated at the wrong times in the wrong ways. And it's so available today. It's all around us. We're absolutely bombarded with sexual allurements and sexual opportunities that are inappropriate for us. And it's amazing how just with a click of a button, click, 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 you can have Bathsheba right before you. It says in the text that she was very beautiful. The word very is not used very often. Here it's used. She was a knockout. She was gorgeous. And on your screen today, you can have Bathsheba anytime you want her. It's so easy. It's so available. And why do we do such things? Well, you remember what Bill Clinton said with Monica Lewinsky when he was asked, why did you do it? He said, because I could. And he was saying it in the sense that that's wrong. I know it's wrong. That I just did it because I I knew I could do it. And that's the problem with power. That's the problem with prestige. Women are often attracted to power and to prestige. David had all of that. David also was a wonderful poet. And I have a little feeling that he composed one just for his little uh, alluring affair with Bathsheba. And I'm sure that she was very enchanted with him. He was a man of great influence. He was also, we know, a very handsome man. So David did it because he could. And as Bill Clinton said, it's one of the worst reasons to do anything is just because you can't. And so often, you can do stuff because you can. That doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make it useful for you or for anybody else. We're surrounded by this stuff. And so we've, we've got to take a good thing and figure out how to control it so that it remains a good thing. 
And we see here the consequences of violating uh, biblical sexual ethics. You can see it in David's life. First of all, his relationship with God is diminished, severely diminished. And you see that he's diminished as a man. And from this point forward, you'll find problems coming in his household. You'll find that he has problems with his own children. And you'll find that he has problems making decisions in his own household. And you'll find David in exile pretty soon in 2 Samuel. And this is the turning point. His whole life is diminished because of it. And his relationship with God is diminished. And you also find that he uh, violates his own covenant with his wife. Uh, Here he had actually more than one wife, which Deuteronomy 17 commanded the kings of Israel not to do. Not to increase your horses, not to increase your wives, not to increase your silver and gold. David was pretty good on numbers one and three. Wasn't pretty, he wasn't very good on number two. David liked his women. And he had more than one wife, and here he's taking one that doesn't even belong to him. And what you find is, this is not love. And David knows better. David knows how to express real love. In the previous chapters, we saw that he looked for Mephibosheth, a lame heir of the previous dynasty. He went out and found him. Why? Because of chesed, covenant love, real love. He went and demonstrated that love to Jonathan and to Mephibosheth by putting this lame, otherwise useless man at his own table, making him like one of his own sons. And then he went to the Ammonites, for heaven's sakes, even one of his enemies, to show them chesed. Because they had been loyal to him in previous administrations, he was going to be loyal to them. This man knows what chesed is. And now he does the exact opposite of Hesed. He's not being loyal to the Lord who called him to be faithful in covenant marriage. And he's not being faithful to Bathsheba either. He's destroying her or attempting to destroy her and to use her. And what happens when you get involved in illicit sexual relationships or pornography? Either one. You are objectifying women. You're making them simply an object of your desire. You've ceased to think of them as women. You understand, of course, most of the women in the pornographic industry are there as almost like sexual slaves. And 90% of them have been abused. And that's the reason they got into this in the first place. They have no self-esteem. It's been obliterated by previous sexual uh, oppression from some other men usually. So the whole industry is one of great disadvantage for for women and we're participating in it when we're engaged in pornography and when we're teasing or alluring or flirting with with some woman we're actually we're actually committing a violation against her it's not love it's theft to take a woman to bed that doesn't belong to you is to steal steal from her take some taking something that doesn't belong to you so in every respect with david's self with David's God, and with David's neighbor. He violates Hesed in all directions. It's absolutely devastating. And uh, we need to be aware of this and look a little for a moment at the dynamics of this affair, how this happened. It's the same way it happens today. And then I want us to look at uh, five disciplines of a sexually faithful life. Five disciplines of sexual purity. So I'll give that to you at the end. And I want to walk through five disciplines that we need to be engaged in to avoid this kind of thing in our own lives. Now next week, we're going to talk about how you recover from such a thing. 
And I encourage you to come back next week. We need that message because everybody here is a sexual sinner. If you are the exception to the rule, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd like to know how you did it. Uh, But everybody here is a sexual sinner. We've all had uh, thoughts that are unworthy of a Christian. Uh, We've all said things that are inappropriate. And some of us have been engaged in actions which parallel exactly what David's doing. So we need to learn how we recover from this. Next week we'll focus on that. And there is recovery. And there's only one way to recover. So let's be sure we get it next week. This week we're going to look at the dynamics of how these things happen so we understand ourselves. And we'll look at the kinds of disciplines that we need to establish. First of all, in verses 1 through 2, you see that it begins with flirting. Not just flirting with Bathsheba, but flirting with danger. And you can see it because it says in verse 1, when kings go out to battle... David remained at Jerusalem. Instead of being in the war room, he was in the bedroom. Instead of being at at war, he was at ease. It was the springtime. If you've been in Jerusalem in the springtime, you have these nice warm breezes that come through like on a spring day. And here it was the late afternoon, right before sunset, very romantic moment. And he's coming out of his bedroom, which I'm sure was beautifully adorned with all kinds of wonderful uh, carpets and drapes and other things and furnishings. And he goes out into a patio, which was common for a king, outside his bedroom where he could meet with uh, his own advisors or his own family. And he goes out and he looks out because he can look out over the whole city. And there he sees Bathsheba uh, having her um, ritual bath after her period to cleanse herself from ritual uh, uncleanness. And there she was naked. And he looked at her. And you'll see what happens. It happened one late afternoon. She was very beautiful. And you'll see in verse 2, he saw from the roof. He saw her. Now, we see certain things. And if, if you're uh, fully heterosexual and you see a woman and she's attractive, you notice it. Believe me, they notice it too. When your heads turn, that's part of their problem. They're trying to get your heads to turn. It makes them feel good too that they're attractive. They'd never tell you that, but they, they kind of like it when your head turns. They don't like it when you stare at them in the wrong place on their body, but they like it when your head turns. So they're very aware of it. And your head does turn because you notice beauty when you see it. David noticed it too. But now he's flirting with danger. He was there in the first place, disengaged from what he should be doing. He was at leisure when he should have been at work. And uh, he was feeling really full of himself. And he could do whatever he wanted to do. That's the way he felt. That's flirting with danger. And you'll see that when you see something like that, and you know you can be tempted, folks, there's only one answer, and that is run like a scalded dog. In Genesis chapter 39, you'll find what Joseph did. He fled. He got out of there. When, she, when uh, Potiphar's wife wanted to take him to bed, she had to grab his robe, but he ran without his cloak. He got out of there. That's the only answer. David didn't run. He kept looking. You've got a decision to make. First time you see something that arouses you mentally and it looks attractive to you, you've got a basic decision to make right there. That's where the discipline uh, doesn't begin there, but actually it's a very important step that you must decide what you're going to do. You see a beautiful woman, are you going to look at her in the eyes and treat her like a human being? Or are you going to stare at her breasts? and treat her like an object. You've got a decision to make. And you need to treat her like a human being. Give her chesed, real love. And when you're faithful sexually, 
and when you've got your own sexual disciplines in place, you can actually love women and be their friends. When you treat them with respect and you have proper boundaries in that relationship, you'll find you're establishing healthy relationships with the opposite gender. If you just continue to think of women as someone that could potentially be your sexual partner, then you're never really going to have good female friends. But David kept staring. He objectified her. He treated her like an object instead of like a human being. He didn't run. He didn't flee. We'll come back to that later. Now, secondly, in verses 3 and 4, after flirting is falling. And look what David did. He kept looking, kept staring, kept thinking. And what did he do? He sent and inquired about the woman. So he asked a question about her. So he's showing an interest. It's the next step. And he inquires about her and he finds out this. The word comes back. Usually someone's reported as being the daughter of Eliam, the granddaughter of so-and-so and the great-granddaughter of so-and-so. Look at this report. This is Bathsheba. She has a name. She's a person. She's the daughter of Eliam. And she's the wife, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now for all the flirtatious and alluring looks that David might have had toward her, this should have ended the entire matter right here. Not for David. Why? Because he can. He's got the power, the machismo to do it. So wife, the word wife doesn't stop him at all. No alarms seem to go off. So what does David do? He sent messengers. This man's obsessed with her. It's just like pornography. He's, just, he's obsessed. He's caught. And some of you, 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 the first big mistake you make is you start letting your mind wander. And then you, you'll click on the button. And once you click it on, four hours later, uh, you're, you're finally off. You just were obsessed. You were taken in. And this is what's happening to David. So he sends messengers. And then look at the actions. He took her. He lay with her. And then she returned to her house. He had used her, and she went on back. Now, Uriah the Hittite, in 2 Samuel 23, 39, we are told, he is one of David's major fighting men. You know, there were the 30 valiant men, actually 37. Uriah was one of those. He was a Hittite. He was not an Israelite. He had married an Israelite. So obviously he was a proselyte. He was a convert from, uh, from the Hittite people. But he was a great soldier, valiant man, probably a, a captain or lieutenant colonel uh, in his forces. And, uh, and yet David was not stopped by her being a married woman, and he wasn't stopped by her being the wife of one of his key military leaders. This is an amazing failure on David's part. And it shows us with a man after God's own heart. David still is a man after God's own heart. He can be allured to do something so tragically wrong. And he can spoil his own sexual faithfulness. And he can diminish his relationship with God. We're perfectly capable of this. And anyone who thinks they're not, take heed lest you fall, as the Apostle Paul says. Every one of us here is capable of it. Every one of us here needs serious disciplines the kind of disciplines that were not in David's life on this issue at this point in his life. What's the next thing that happens? Well, in verses 5 through 13, then there's a covering, a covering up. David doesn't confess that what he had done has wrong. He didn't go to the priest. 
and say, I have sinned against the Lord and I need to be, I need to be recovered. I need to be healed. I need help. He didn't go for accountability. He didn't go to his brothers and share any of this. What does he try to do? Well, he'll just cover it up. And how, why does he use this method? Because he can. She comes back to him with these words, I'm pregnant. So David is a pretty smart guy. And so he says, well, I know, you know Uriah is one of my key guys. I'll just invite him in uh, off the battlefield. And I'll, you know, under the pretenses of just wanting to know how things are going. And giving the man a little time off, you know, from the battlefield. Or just a leave, a little short leave, long weekend home. And I'll ask him how the battle is going. And then I'll say, well, you know, hey, while you're here giving me this report, military report, why don't you just go home? Oh, yeah, right. So Uriah's going to go home, have sex with his wife, and then later on when he finds out she's pregnant, well, she may deliver a little early, but, uh, you know, we'll all know that it was basically when Uriah went home during the, during the battle with the Ammonites. But Uriah, the Hittite, is going to act more like an Israelite than David does. And Uriah, the Hittite, says, how can I... Uh, when I've got my commander Joab on the field with the men who are out there fighting, how can I go home and have the pleasures of my house And while they're out there fighting? I'm not going to do it. And so he doesn't leave the royal palace grounds. He sleeps on the threshold of the door, on the porch outside. He refuses to go home out of chesed, loyal, faithful love for his troops, just outshining David right and left. So David goes to... Plan B, which is, well, let's get the man drunk, because we all know that when you're, when you're drunk, you're much more open to violating your principles. Uh, and so let's, let's just have a little party. We'll get him drunk, and then surely in his drunken stupor, he'll want to go home and have sex with his wife. So he gets the man drunk, and the same thing. And look at the words that he uses. Uriah said to David in verse 11, look at this religious language that Uriah uses. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. He speaks of the ark of the covenant. He's saying the ark of the covenant is in a tent. How, and we, because we haven't yet established the temple here. How can I go and enjoy my house when the ark of the covenant is still in a tent? Here Uriah is using the kind of religious language that we would expect out of David. He's completely showing David up. So David tries to cover up. In the midst of it, he even looks worse. So David sends him back. And then if you'll, you'll look at verses 14 through 17, now it gets aggravated. What happens as you continue on, you will aggravate your sin. First of all, you'll try to cover it up, deny that it ever happened, not say anything to anybody. And then as it continues on and you... You get in more trouble. Your sins now become aggravated. And for a lot of people, that just means lying. You just start lying. Bold-faced lying. You know, well, are you dealing with pornography? No. Uh, did, you, did you get entangled in any way romantically with that woman? No. Just stonewalling. And we saw it once again with, with Clinton because it was a very public affair. Uh, and you saw it, just stonewalling until... The evidence was absolute. The semen from his body was on her dress. How are you going to deny that? Okay, now we've got to admit it. And that's the way 
that's the way sexual sin will grab you because of the, of the way that we're built and because of the shame that surrounds a sexual sin in our own lives. We try to cover it and we aggravate that sin by trying to cover it with lies and other evil. Now look at his lying and his aggravation. His is going to include murder. So he sends Uriah back with his own death warrant in his hand to hand it over to Joab. And look at what he's saying to Joab. We already know that Joab is a violent man. He's a man that had to be disciplined. He was a man that sometimes acted like a non-believer completely. He's a man who's sometimes morally compromised. And David knows it. And David sends this letter this wicked, murderous letter to a man like that. What kind of example is that to Joab? That's the last thing Joab needs in his life is an excuse to live the kind of life Joab wants to live. Knowing, well, who's David to say anything about me? Look at what he's doing. That's what David said. You see how his life is being diminished in every respect, 360 degrees around it. So he sends this death warrant in Uriah's hand to give to Joab Let him rush toward the front and then pull back from him. So Joab knows exactly what David's doing. And Joab does it. Joab does it. And then he sends a messenger uh, back uh, to David. And this is in verses 18 through 25 where you have just denial. David is going to be denying everything in the way that he lives. So what this instruction comes back and Joab says to the messenger, now if David tries to give you a, a, a lesson on military science and asking how in the world did you fight that battle and lose so many men, you know better. And he refers to a case in Judges where we all know that Bimelech got killed because the woman dropped you know, a stone on his head because he got too close to the wall. We all know that story. Joab, why in the world didn't, did you do something so foolish? Joab says to his messenger, if he starts to give you that sermon, you just say to him, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Sure enough, that stopped all sermonizing on David's part. And then look what David does. He, in verse 25, he gives this patronizing, self-righteous, self-denying sort of advice to the messenger. So say to Joab, verse 25, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And give him some encouragement when you go back, will you? How false. What a farce. What a bunch of baloney. David's posturing himself as now a 50-year-old, mature, wise warrior Tell Joab not to worry. These things happen, you know. He's in total denial. He's taking on another role, pretending to be a different man than the man that he really is. It's all pretension. You get into sexual sin. You lose the disciplines in your life. It just leads to more and more aggravation, more and more pretension. You lose yourself. And you lose your ability to be a, a powerful warrior in God's hands. And here, what David is doing is very much like, you'll notice I put the verses here in from 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15. He looks an awful lot like Saul. And Saul says to Samuel, well, we obeyed you. And Samuel says, what's that bleeding in my ear? And Saul's pretending to be an obedient man. 
And here David's doing the same damned thing. And I use the word intentionally. It's damnable. Pretending to be someone that you're not. Going into a life of denial. And it's amazing to me when I talk with men who are engaged in affairs outside of their marriage with some other woman. It's amazing to me if you just listen to the rationale and the logic. It's unbelievable. Or if I talk to a man who's gay and he's involved sexually with other men, to listen to his narrative and his rationale. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know, you, like they say, you can't argue with a stiff sex organ. Stiff sex organs can't think. They have no brain, as my uncle taught me when I was a kid. So you have to be very careful. David is not thinking straight. He's brilliant, so he can make up all kinds of rationale. He can present himself as a very judicious, kind, and wise man. That's the way he's presenting himself, and it's all a farce. And you can take your great intelligence and your tremendous abilities and just use them to seek to present yourself as someone you're not. And then in verses 26 and 27, you have deception. So he's in self-denial, and now he's in self-deception. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So now David's going to act as though nothing happened. Oh, the funeral was just so terrible. I'm so sorry about Uriah. Well, let me be the rescuer. Let me go and bring in this woman into my own home, which is what he does. And he's just going from bad to worse. He is deceiving himself and everybody around him. And then lastly, verse 27b, he's self-deluded. He's deluding himself and other things. And here's why. It says here, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, what you'd need to notice is the comparison that I put there with verse 25 uh, when he speaks, uh, giving a message to Joab. Literally, the Hebrew says in verse 25, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Where it says, uh, don't, do not let this matter displease you. Literally, is do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Then the author of 2 Samuel uses the same language. In verse 27, he says, the thing... David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. So David is deluded if he thinks that he can pretend in such a way that fools God. If you think you can pull the wool over God's eyes, you've got another thought coming. God is not deluded. He's not deceived. He's not thrown off by your pretensions. He knows what's going on. And what the writer is saying is he's setting you up to understand what's going to happen after this in David's life. He's saying David's saying... Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Don't worry about it. The problem David had, it was evil in Yahweh's eyes. And David is now dealing with God. And we all have to deal with Him. Now this leads us to our basic disciplines that we need in our sexual life. And let me, let me mention five disciplines for sexual purity. And if you can find somewhere to jot these down, maybe they'll be helpful for you. First of all, Take full responsibility for your sexual life. Take full responsibility for your sexual life. 
And you might mention there in your text, as you write it down, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no sin that's, uh, that's fallen, befallen us, or no temptation that's befallen us for which there's no escape. There's an escape for every sin, for everybody who's in Christ. Don't make any stupid excuses for yourself. Now, there's something very interesting about this text, literarily. In the previous chapters, we run through the battles with the Ammonites pretty quickly. It's just from one battle to the next, one instant to the next. When you get to 1 Samuel 11, things, or 2 Samuel 11, things slow down. And we part, we, the, the author slows down and gives us more of the detail of what's going on because this story is obviously important. But here's what you'll notice in 2 Samuel 11. Even though the author slows down and gives us more details in this story, we don't hear anything about the psychology of Bathsheba and you don't hear anything about the psychology of Joab. Let me explain what I mean. Bathsheba was out there naked bathing and it was still daylight. And she was obviously within view of the king's palace. Something's not quite right with that. This woman was very beautiful and undoubtedly she knew it. And women are very aware of their sexual power. And they must be very careful with how they use it and how they dress. And some of your wives need to have some conversations with your daughters about how to dress appropriately. Because they need to be aware at a young age of the kind of sexual power that they have and how to use that sexual power. Just like you use your masculinity, these are females and they need to learn how to be females without alluring people inappropriately. Bathsheba clearly seems to have crossed the line. Bathsheba accepted the request to come up to David's bedroom. Bathsheba sinned against the Lord. You don't find any of that here. Why not? We're staying focused on David. David has no excuses. And I don't care if it's Marilyn Monroe out there naked. That gives you no excuse to go inquire about her, stare at her, objectify her, make plans with her just because she's available, just because she wants you to pursue her, just because she tells you that you're handsome and that she really appreciates the love that you're showing her, that's absolutely zero excuse. And this author stays focused completely on David and what David did. No mention of what Bathsheba did. When you get to the murder of Uriah the Hittite, there are all kinds of people here who are sinning. Joab primarily. And Joab gets this message from a king, and we know from what the Old Testament says, there's no way he's supposed to obey the king. Civil disobedience is the only route for him. And he doesn't take it. He conspires with David to kill a man. And not only to kill a man, but a bunch of other men in the episode. Murder! Joab completely conspires with him. Not one word about Joab's sin. Why? No excuses. No excuses that someone tells you, oh, listen, you can do this, but it's no problem with it. And they give you all this counsel and give you all the reasons why it's fine for you to do it. No excuses. Or you can read that, you know, everybody's doing it. You know, 70% of the men who go to church are, are engaging in pornography. I mean, that's just the way we're built. I mean, who can stop us? No excuses. So you've got to take responsibility for being a man of God and a man after God's own heart you cannot blame Joab, you cannot blame Bathsheba, you cannot blame the press or the internet or anything else. Take responsibility. There's a way of escape for every single one of us. We've got to apply that way of escape 
Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a very important verse. Let's take a look at it. On page 2205, God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God is chesed. He has faithful love. And He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. He always gives you a way of escape. So when you're in the midst of temptation, you've got to be asking the Lord, Lord, where is the escape hatch? I know there's one around here somewhere. And you try all the, all the handles until you find that escape hatch and get out of there. Take responsibility for your own sexual life. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Secondly, on our disciplines. First of all, take full responsibility. Secondly, practice the presence of the Lord. Practice the presence of the Lord. In Genesis 39, let's look at that text. Verse 6. And this is on page 118, 119. When Potiphar's wife is trying to take Joseph to bed, we're told that Potiphar, verse 6 of Genesis 39, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So Joseph was handsome. He was obviously intelligent. He obviously had character, and now he has prestige. He's he's got the things that attract uh, women. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Now look at his answer. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. He avoided her. But how can I do this this thing against your husband and against God? He was practicing the presence of God in his life. What happens when you are falling prey to sexual temptation? You are intentionally trying to erase God from your conscience. If you're a Christian man, you, you must do that in order to proceed. And that's the worst thing you could possibly do with your life is to remove the presence of God. Here's the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his book, Temptation. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment... God is quite unreal to us. 
He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. So how do you practice the presence of God? It's the things that we're doing. We're seeking Him in prayer, studying His Word, committing His Word to memory in our minds, contemplating His Word, talking to Him throughout the day. Keep the conversation going. So that first image comes across the internet on your screen. Just pray, Lord, help me. Don't lose sight of God. Don't forget Him. Don't delete Him. Call out to Him and ask for His help. You must practice the presence of God. Take responsibility for your own sexual life, your attitudes, your words, your thoughts, your actions, and live your life consciously in His presence. That's the second discipline. The third discipline is this. You've got to establish healthy boundaries. Establish healthy boundaries. I notice as a full-blooded heterosexual who finds women very attractive, not just physically, but in every way. I find that if I'm watching a TV program where there's a beautiful woman scantily clad, that I immediately want to see more. And I'm, I'm immediately you know, tempted to go to something where I can see more than what I was shown on TV. So what's the answer? Why don't I back it up a notch and say, now, what TV programs am I watching? What does that to me? And I know it's very hard to watch anything uh, that's being produced without those kinds of allurements. So if you're going to watch something like that that's romantic or sexually uh, arousing, be sure if you're married you have your wife with you when you're watching it. Just don't go watch something like that by yourself when you know that you're inappropriately aroused. One thing leads to another. You figure out where your boundaries are. I've already told you, I I don't hang out on beaches during the middle of the day. I take my walk on the beach in the cool of the evening as the sun is setting and all the babes have disappeared from the beach. And i tell you something else I used to do. Uh, I used to put, back in the days when we had cassette recorders, because then I was a younger man especially, and I'd put that cassette recorder in my bathing suit pocket and I'd put the headphones on and listen to sermons while I walked the beach. It helped. So I'm listening to a text, God speaking to me, and I want to stare at a woman. It just doesn't work very well. God and sexual lust don't go together very well. Why? Because you're being unfaithful to Him. Well, at the same time that you're trying to listen to Him. It's impossible. Fill your mind with, with the Lord, with His Word, and establish appropriate boundaries. You know yourself. You know what you can do and what you can't do. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4 even speaks of our language. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So in in male company, we'll talk about all kinds of sexual things, even as Christian men, and think, oh, that's kind of funny. Watch yourself. Your mouth will often, your, your feet will often follow your mouth. So you're not even supposed to let something unwholesome come out of your mouth. Do you know how much you love your mother? Do you know how much you love your wife? Do you know how much you love your daughters, for those of you who have children? Why would you not treat every woman 
like your mother or like a sister or like your daughters? Women that you love and respect and want others to respect them? That's the way you must look at them as your sisters. So establish healthy boundaries. Sometimes you know, men will go on business trips and it'll be a man and a woman. And I know that's common practice in a lot of businesses, but you know what? I think some of you all need to change the common practice. It's just not healthy. When you're in a, on a trip, when you have private time with a person of the opposite gender who's not your wife, uh, it just seems to be inappropriate. I don't travel in a car with one woman unless it's a family member. Uh, I always insist that there be another woman there. I'll travel with two women or I'll travel with two men and a woman, but I won't have a woman in my car and go anywhere. And I certainly am not going to have lunch. I think I had one lunch in 20 years here in Memphis. Some of you who knew Linda Gibbs at Hutchinson School, I had lunch with Linda Gibbs one day at the Crescent Club. I believe that's the only lunch I ever had with a woman. I assumed that the Crescent Club, that's probably safe with Linda Gibbs, if you knew Linda. Yeah, you're laughing. Uh, so, be careful. Set your boundaries where they need to be. Uh, look at women in the eye. Watch the, uh, the uh, temptation to become intimate with them in language. Sharing things with women that are not your, your family members that are inappropriate. Women love to have intimate things shared across the way. They love the relationship. So when you're doing that, you're giving them what they want. You're alluring them by sharing personal things with another woman that's inappropriate. You should share those things with a man, a brother in Christ, like David did with Jonathan in his good years. And now he's going to share across the lines and it's completely inappropriate. Watch your boundaries. Um, Be a man who clearly shows that you have no intentions toward a woman except to treat her as a sister and to build her up. Fourthly, develop mutual accountability. Develop mutual accountability. Early on in my ministry as a pastor in my 30s, I got a group of guys together and we just swore that if any of us ever got into sexual problem, the others of us would see that we didn't get back into ministry. There's a revolving door out there with people in ministry, people who fall sexually and then go right back into pastoral work later. And my friends and I said, you know, I'm sure that's, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you that can't happen. We're just not going to do it. We're just going to agree right now that if we don't have the strength to persevere for the whatever years of ministry God gives us to keep our hands off people, then let's not entrust our sel- their souls to us either. How can we be a soul caregiver when we can't even take care of their bodies by keeping our hands off of them? So let's just agree that if, if any of us falls, the rest of us are going to see to it, that person stays out of uh, pastoral ministry. We also had an agreement early on in our lives that if we see anything, view any movie, read any book that's inappropriate, we've got to report it to the brothers. Do you have a relationship like this? Do you have anybody you can talk to? It's not because you're weak. It's because you're a man. You're a human being and you're a sinner. You need help. Everybody needs help. So I suggest that you find some men that you trust enough to be your confidential accountability partners and come clean with them. There's a program that some of you use called Covenant Eyes or other programs where you can exchange the websites you've been visiting. And that can go every day or every week to your friend and they can quickly survey the sites off your computer. And that's just a way to hold yourself accountable. Use what you've got. God gives us the brotherhood for a purpose because we need it. Fifthly and lastly, learn to run. Flee youthful passions, Paul said to Timothy. 
Timothy was probably around 40 when Paul said that. Flee youthful passions. Get the heck out of there. Run like a scalded dog. That's your answer. You don't flirt around with it. You don't try to negotiate with it. You don't try to reason with it. You get out of there. So you run when you, when you know that there's a temptation there that will take you nowhere good. You get out of there. You learn how to flee from the very first moment. When David looked down upon Marilyn Monroe and saw her with all of her clothes off, and surely she was even alluring him, he saw all of that. He had to run back into his house and grab somebody and plead with them to help him. Because he's being strongly allured to keep watching and keep imagining, to take the next step. You've got to have help, but you've got to learn to run. And you'll find it over and over and over again in the New Testament. Flee, flee. And that's not F-L-E-A, that's F-L-E-E. Run, flee, over and over again in the New Testament. You've got to get good at this. It's not because you're a coward. It's because you're a warrior. And you've got a job to do. And you cannot be distracted by sexual immorality or any of the temptations that would allure you there. And it is a battle. And we've got to stick together. Now, I've already said all of us have failed. Some of us have failed fairly dramatically. Like David. And there's an answer. And praise be to the Lord, there is an answer for this. And for all of our adulteries, fornications, evil thoughts, everything that's in this, what if we took all the things among the men in this room and piled it up? I think the list would go way over the ceiling of all the sins we've got to deal with. We're going to deal with them next week and see that our God in His chesed toward us is so faithful and so gracious, He covers all of our sins and sets us on a new path. That's just what He does with David. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the way that You've made us. And sometimes we wonder why these temptations are so strong and powerful and so destructive and why we have to deal with it. And yet, Lord, we would take full responsibility for our own brokenness. We're the ones who sinned against You. You haven't sinned against us. And we have taken what's good and true and beautiful and we've distorted it. And we've used our manhood in ways that have not built other people up, but rather have destroyed them. We ask your forgiveness and we ask now for you to redirect us and help us to set our foot on a strong place. Help us to engage the disciplines of sexual purity. That we may be useful to you and that we may honor and glorify you in every respect. And we pray that as we prepare even next week to study the recovery for such sins, that you will give us the confidence that you do forgive and heal and restore. And we are deeply grateful for this gospel restoration provided by you. And now, Lord, as we go, help us to be faithful, loving men. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.